you know, the reason they, they like reading my stuff is that I've always got real life examples to prove what I'm saying. There's a lot of good people that listen to this podcast. You know, other than God and my family, deer hunting would be next in line on my list of priorities. From the bottom of our hearts, it's it's just fantastic and awesome to uh, to have the support that you guys are getting. People ask me about expandable broadheads and love swings. <laughs> Chasing Giants with Don Higgins and Terry Peer. Brought to you by Osseo Camo, nature's most lethal camouflage. Follow along as Don and Terry discuss the techniques, strategies, and dedication needed to harvest one of God's most amazing creations, world-class whitetails. Well, welcome everyone to the Chasing Giants podcast, episode 198. Oh, it's December already. Don Higgins, I got you on the screen here for those people watching on YouTube, for those listening on other platforms. Man, it's it's hard to believe it's already December. Yeah, it is. Um, November flew by, and uh, I probably hunted less in November than I ever have, but I, I scouted more this November than I ever have. I got uh, I walked a lot of new properties in November just searching you know, for a potential target buck for not only this season, but next season. So every season's a little bit different. Well, I'll tell you, I've seen you uh, get ready for more habitat improvements this fall than I've ever seen you doing because it seems like a daily basis. You're sending us an email at Cornerstone Equipment saying, do you guys sell this? Can you get me this? Can you do me this? And, uh, all I got to say is you must be planting a lot of potted trees because to buy a 24-inch auger, you're putting a lot of holes in the ground uh, anticipating well, this spring. Actually, it's for these apple trees I'm going to get from Gingrich. Instead of digging a small hole, I want to loosen up that dirt in a 24-inch hole with a 24-inch auger, and I'm going to put some soil amendments in the, the ground with the, when I put them back, but I want those those trees to be able to to root out in that loose soil and that's the reason for the 24 inch auger so uh, but i do have a bunch of them coming i got 75 grafted persimmons oh wow and on top of that i've got um apples pears and chestnuts and yeah. i've got 300 uh spruce trees coming yeah and jay gingrich is bringing me 130 bigger burlapped oak trees I've got some, I'm telling you what, I'm two years away from really have really being set. I told you that I bought another property, right? I don't think we talked about that on you here. Did not, you did not, you've told me that, I know that. I didn't know if you were going to talk about it on the podcast, but uh, yes, you, you did buy another property and getting that stuff done. And it's just, it's been kind of fun watching you start to prepare strategy for not only continuing of your home farm because you you know you bought that adjoining property but then this other piece um yeah i mean b besides laughing when you call us and say do you have one of these and we say yeah it's in stock we'll get you a deal if you buy it before the end of the year uh watching you plan all this stuff has been kind of fun well i'll tell you what uh, the new property i'm wiping everything out this spring uh, i'm gonna be i'm gonna be totally done and it's gonna need about two growing seasons for stuff to really take off now the apple trees are obviously going to take a little bit longer right. now but there's going to be switchgrass miscanthus fruit trees uh new food plots 
all that is going to be done this spring. I'm going to be going crazy. I'm probably going to have my son-in-law and Austin Razor here, and, and we're going to go to town. And this new property, I'm going to do things I've even made fun of in the past. Um, I got Austin coming to dig me a, a water hole, and it's going to be very strategic. I, I don't think this property needs water, but whenever it's all, we're going to video everything for the Whitetail Master Academy, but when you see where this water hole is going, it's going to make total sense because we're going to use it to funnel deer around that water hole closer to my stand. I've got a stand site that I'm going to build on this property today. If you'd sit on that tree today, you, you would probably never shoot a deer, but I promise you within about two years, that tree is going to be the best tree in the county. Uh, it's going to be I, Smoky Blind 2.0. Well, I love that dialogue because we, we constantly talk. I think there's even maybe a question this week about picking the right tree. You've picked the tree that has access for a certain condition, and you're changing yep. the habitat to address it. Because it's really funny, because Austin's going to also be digging me a water hole on my place this year. So I think between both of us and my land consulting clients that I always get Austin to go with me and he does a lot of implementation plans, we're going to keep Austin busy this spring. Yeah. And I know there's going to be people, uh, saying, Oh, Don's made fun of water holes for years. Now here he is backtracking. He's going back on his word. I'm telling you folks, if you've seen this layout and how it's all going to come together, there's things going to happen in front of this tree that I'm not even going to discuss on here, but I'm going to detail it on the Whitetail Master Academy by video. And I'm telling you, this tree today is, you wouldn't see a deer there, but give me two years and, and it's going to be one of the best stand sites in the whole county. All right. Well, we look forward to that. Um, I heard you got, I saw you got a lot of new followers on the Whitetail Master Academy with the Black Friday sale. I'm really happy to that because a lot of people talk about how uh, how helpful that is. Uh, we got a we got a pretty interesting show today. I think the best thing for us to do at this point is let's make a couple announcements, then we'll take our Osseo spotlight, um, and then I want to come back and talk about some things that we were just talking about because the late season is coming upon us right now. Uh, the sooner it gets cold weather, the better. But you had a really interesting uh, situation happen with some feedback from a picture that you posted of a deer we believe is at least four, maybe five years old. And we want to share that story with us after the Osseo spot. But before we do that, you have some announcements about master classes. Let's go ahead and get that out of the way. And um, let's also talk a little bit about Ship Shawana. Sure. Yeah, so we suspended the whitetail master classes on my home farm this year because of the major projects that we've got going. We're just kind of changing the whole farm uh, to, a, to a major degree. Um, and I want to get those things implemented. And then probably either next year, I may take two years off to allow things to, to mature a little bit, and then we'll start again. But I am going to have those a couple of remote master classes on past consulting clients' properties. And uh, one of those is going to be um, March 23rd in Spencerville, Indiana. Um, it, it's a property that I consulted on probably about three years ago, I guess. And uh, 
it's an Amish farm, uh, a good facility for the class right there by the farm. I mean, walking distance from the farm. Uh, that's going to be a good one. And then on uh, April 6th, we're going to go up to New Richmond, Wisconsin, and look at a property I did there. And it was about, uh, I think it was la last year. Remember we ranked the property? I did like 80-some properties a couple of years ago, I guess it was, and I ranked them, and I picked the top three properties that I saw that winter. Well, this property lays out absolutely fantastic, and it was one of those top three. I don't remember what it ranked, but it, I, I remember it was in one of the top three. We're going to go and uh, look at that property, and uh, that, again, that's April 6th. So anybody that's interested, both of these are going to be limited um, on how many people we can take. Um, if you're interested, the, the, the cost is $950. Uh, we want a $250 deposit per student. And you can just mail that to me. And uh, when you do, make a note of uh, enlist every student that you're writing a check for. So in other words, if you got four people coming, you write a check for $1,000, $250 each, list the four people so that I, I can know exactly who's coming. And give me your phone number, too, so I can call, you know, in case, you know, something would happen. We change a date or cancel or whatever. But uh, so you can mail those checks to me. My address is 1427 North 3500 East Road in Gaze, Illinois, G-A-Y-S, Illinois, 61928. And uh, we're going to get those lists started. The, I've got a new website that's going to be probably up within the week, and this information will be on that website as well. But uh, looking forward to those remote classes um, this winter. Yeah, and we'll do uh, we'll do our due diligence to get everybody a schedule. Um, I'm not sure of my travel schedule yet, but should be able to lock that in in uh, by the first of the year to let people know if we're going to be doing a podcast there or uh, or what have you. Um, Don, how many people are you capping these at since they're remote? Um, each facility is a little different. Do you have any idea on that yet? Well, the one in Indiana, they thought that we could handle uh, 50 people. Now, 50 people in the field may be a little much, but uh, we'll, we'll make it work. Um, I've been to that property at least twice that I can remember, and uh, it's fairly easy terrain to get over, so that one won't be too bad. The Wisconsin property is going to be a little longer walk, but it's flat terrain. Both of them are, are really flat terrain, so um, having a big crowd won't be near as bad as if you're going up and down hills, you know, and you, you lose people in the crowd. Um, yeah. So, so the, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll put more information out, but just mark your calendars on that. Are we allowed to talk about Shipshawana a little bit? I think we are, aren't we? We are. In fact, uh, we had an offer thrown out at the Real World Dealer meeting yesterday that uh, th they wanted to make Real World one of the uh, platinum level sponsors of the event. And they said that if uh, I took part in the roundtable discussion with Bobby Worthington, Joe Miles, Al Foster, and I think the Wenzel brothers are coming, if I took part in that, and you and I did a podcast, they would make us platinum level sponsors. And I'm like, well, we already agreed to do that. 
Okay, yeah, make us a platinum level sponsor. We've already <laughs> signed the <laughs> we've already signed the contract to be there. So yeah, so um, look, looking forward to that for sure. Yeah, we have a lot also, of friends we haven't seen for a while. Oh, uh, that that area is special to us. And uh, what's really cool about it is they're actually giving us a free booth for Lester's feet there. So I don't know who's going to work it there, but uh, just to sit back and talk with people about our mission and what we do, um, I'm not sure if any of the board's going to be able to make it yet. We're still working on those schedules, but uh, our good friend the Metzgers actually said that they would sit in the booth and talk to people if they had to for us. So I got to see That's them awesome. a couple weeks ago, so they said they would help. But uh, yeah, it's going to be fun. What Do you happen to remember the dates on that? It's the beginning of February or end of February? It's mid-February. Yeah. Um, I think around the 16th, 17th. That sounds right. So we'll release the information on that. That's a Thursday, Friday, Saturday show, if I'm not mistaken. And we'll have a big event probably each night of the show. So for the people traveling, uh, get a hotel and come. And the roundtable event, the podcast, each of those will be on different nights. So we'll be sure to um, talk more about that as we come. So let's yep. take a quick break. Um, we're going to, full disclosure, as I pull this up, we might say the gentleman in the Osseo Spotlight's name a little bit wrong, but we're going to do our best. But the important thing is he shot a giant in Texas. Yeah, and I apologize if I get this name wrong, but uh, I, I believe it's Tarif Al-Khatib. Um, Again, I apologize if it's wrong, but he shot a giant, a Texas buck. Um, big smile on his face for good reason, because that, that's quite the deer no matter where he shot it. But uh, looks like he was wearing the Osseo base layers, the mid-weight hoodie, uh, the Sherpa bibs, and the late-season vest. Um, shot it with a bow. Uh, I can't count the points, but he's got at least 12-plus uh, points. Uh, dandy buck. Yeah, but both of his brows are split. His beam's got a lot of curl, big wide frame, good tine length. Um, I love those dark racks that you get down in Texas. I've never been able to Texas hunt, but that's on my bucket list of something to do. Um, you know, yep. around the first of the year, one of these days is go down to Texas to see that country. Another great photo also. I love the photos that are coming in very done in really good taste you know there's no blood showing no tongues hanging out of their mouth just a real great photo all right well congratulations um even through late season if you want to be featured in the osseo spotlight you need to send it to osseo with all of the information they'll get with you get permission to use it and then they select this photo it's not don or i we've had a couple people send these pictures to us but it's actually osseo's decision on what they want to put as the featured photo of this. So make sure you get with those guys. We can connect you, but it's not our decision. So I'm I'm really interested in this next segment, the next segment of the podcast. Um, I'm going to show for the, those watching on um, on YouTube right now. I'm going to share my screen to show a Facebook post that you made this morning and. I honestly didn't see it. I had a really busy morning at work, and Patrick Simpson, my buddy, came into the shop and was uh, talking with Brandon Epperson and I, and they actually talked about the photo of this buck. But um, walk us through the post, what you said, and then what you found out later, because I think it's fascinating. 
Yeah, this buck, uh, he, he's at least four years old. Um, he may be five, but he's either four or five. He was around all summer. Um, he was on and off the farm this summer, but, you know, for, for the most part, he was probably within about three quarters of a mile of my farm all summer long in either well, a couple of three different directions, actually. Um, but once the rut fight, he was here in October, but once the rut started heating up in November, the buck disappeared and I assumed that he had gotten shot. Well, in the past week, I checked cameras, not on my farm, but on outlying farms. And I had this buck on two different cameras, two different properties. Those properties were probably a mile apart. And then one of them was a mile from my farm. The other one was probably two miles from my farm. And I was kind of surprised to see that buck on both of those. He was covering some territory. Well, I posted that photo this morning, and one friend of mine, um, and the buck just showed back up this week, and a friend of mine um, texted me, and he said, uh, hey, I think I seen that, that very buck Tuesday morning in my son's front yard, and his son lives uh, between a mile and a mile and a half from me. And that didn't really surprise me too much because I knew the territory this this buck was covering. And Tuesday, that was probably the buck was probably on his way back to my place when he seen it. And uh, I'm assuming he seen it in the dark because uh, he was picking up his son to go to work. They work at the same place, and I'm sure he was picking him up early. But then I get another text from a friend saying, "Here's a, and it had a picture attached to it." And he says, "Here's a picture of your buck that you just posted." And I'm like, yeah, that's him for sure. And and this friend hunts, he's got one spot that he hunts or two that's fairly close to me. So I just assumed he got that picture on one of those spots. And I said, well, where'd you get that picture? He says, you're not going to believe it. And he told me where it was at. I'm not going to mention it here on the podcast. He says, you're not going to believe where I got that picture. And he told me. And, and that location is over eight miles from my house. And there's an interstate between here and there. So that buck went at least eight miles and crossed an interstate during that period during the rut while he was gone. And the crazy and and I got those other two pictures on two other properties, but I also had that buck on another camera another direction, a mile and a half from me. That buck was covering ten miles minimum that we know of based on these pictures. It's just unbelievable how much territory that deer covered. So there's a lot to break down there um, as far as how much ground a deer covers, uh, especially during the rut. And, you know, a lot of that could be that's where he chased the doe or that's where he went searching. You know, I, a lot of homecoming buck articles that we've talked about on the, on the podcast. But really break down for me um, what the initial thought to hunters who haven't tagged out yet and that they have food and nutrition programs uh, out there. What what does this give them a window of hope when they haven't had a very good rut hunt looking forward to late season? I mean, this is this is proof in the pudding right here. Well, th this buck is not typical by any means. This is a, like an outlier. Mm -hmm. um, I say, I, I've said many times that I don't see new bucks show up during the rut. Yep. If I see a new buck show up on my farm, he shows up in the late season. 
And uh, if you read the comments on this post I made this morning with the picture of this buck, there's a lot of guys saying the same thing, that they've had bucks return to their farms in the last few days and show up on cameras, and those bucks were gone for the entire rut. And it's just a pattern that I see over and over. Now, when they leave, they don't typically go eight or ten miles like this buck did. But, you know, for a guy in the late season, if you provide late season food that's in short supply this time of the year and getting scarcer with each passing week because, you know, more and more food gets consumed, it's available, um, Crops you know, cold weather you. sits in. And if you provide that late season food and you do so in volume, big volume, and you do it year after year after year, you know, it just builds in, in the minds of these local deer that this is the place to go when things get rough. You know, the, the time of the year when the weather's the worst and the food's in shortest supply, I know I can go to this particular property and I can get through the winter because I'm going to have plenty to eat. And it just, it gets ingrained in their minds and it, from each passing or consecutive generation of those deer, it just builds and builds. And, and I refer back, you know, uh, to that, you know, situation in Czechoslovakia with a Berlin wall and the red deer, you know, those red deer would not cross that Berlin wall. 20 years after that wall came down, the deer on each side refused to cross what was wide open country now because the wall was gone, but that wall was known as danger to the deer because the guards that, you know, traveled up and down that wall shot the deer to eat them. And any deer within rifle range of that wall was probably getting shot. So it was a, the most dangerous place in their whole range. And they learned to avoid it, and they pass that on to the next generation and the next. And with each passing generation, um, it, it just became more ingrained in them. And if anybody that's never heard me talk about that before, just go to the to the Internet and do a search on Berlin Wall Red Deer. And there's several articles on it. It's fascinating stuff. That was a negative. You know, that, that wall was a negative that those deer shied away from. Well, when you take a property and you provide volumes of food to get those deer through the entire winter, that's a positive that's pulling those deer. I see it on my place every winter. I have bucks show up that were not here during the rut. They were not here during the early season. But by golly, when the weather gets bad, they start coming. Yeah. You know, um, Sometimes I have a hard time personally when, when I hear about open country like where you're at and hear about a deer traveling a mile. Well, a mile in your habitat is a lot different than a mile in my habitat because you could have one cornfield that could be a mile out across it, you know, where, you know, mm -hmm. the bucks in my area, it's so steep, you know, different hollers and, and hills and ridges with connecting woods through all of it. Going 10 miles in any circumstance, whether it's big open ag country or here, is just fascinating. And I know Dr. Bronson Strickland's talked about, you know, some ranges of these deer are just so big. You you experienced the same thing with Trump uh, at one point where he was going a long way. And when we say 10 miles, he could be going 15. It's just we don't have those data right. points. But I just find it fascinating that 
you know, as we're talking about these animals, I don't think the average hunter has a true perspective of how far these deer can go. And when you start thinking about that and, and annual patterns, I really think it, it's even more beneficial for us to do a better job maintaining our trail camera pictures and data year after year after year. Because it's it's hard to tell how many stands and cameras these guys get to walk by, you know, in, right. in any habitat. I, I find this probably one of the most fascinating parts of deer hunting. Oh, I agree. There's no figuring these critters out because they're all individual, just like you and I. I mean, there's there's people that I talked to a gentleman this week, and uh, he's just a couple years younger than me. And he's only been on two vacations in his adult life. And it's not for lack of finances. He he's just a a worker, and and he he's a farmer and has livestock, and he just uh, tied to the farm. And then we got other people that go on multiple vacations every year. So there's Terry <laughs> raised his hand, Mr. Jamaica there, getting ready to leave the country, or Bahamas or wherever it is you're going. But uh, <laughs> wherever it, my these wife, bucks are, wherever my wife tells me. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. I get drug around a little bit on vacation myself, but uh, these bucks are as individual as people are, and I think that's the big thing that a lot of hunters miss is we try to, you know, paint these bucks in a box. They're going to do this and this and this, and there's these outlier bucks, like the one that you just showed the picture of, that you, you can just throw all rules out, out the window because who knows what they're going to do. So circling back, you know, we hear about people trying to make a difference, compete against the neighbor to, you know, have deer, not the big thing. I bet we've gotten 10 questions here recently about how to turn a buck nocturnal into daylight. I think there might even be a mm -hmm. question today. I'm not sure, but, you know, late season food can just differentiate your farm above all else. And, you know, I think... I'm selfishly, I think I'm in a really good position in Kentucky because we can bow hunt in September before those bachelor groups open up. So with a good food program, alfalfa, you know, green soybeans that haven't turned, if you can get on a bachelor group in Kentucky first week of September, the odds of killing them are really good. They're very patternable. They bed very close mm -hmm. to their food. But also having that same food source in late season here is just phenomenal because just... In bait states, oh, I'm gonna probably I'm probably gonna make ruffle some feathers here, but in bait states, Ohio, Kentucky, people are lazy, and as soon as that rut's over, as soon as they kill a deer, guess what? Their feed program immediately goes away because they're using it as bait, not supplemental feeding. And I think in a bait state, your late season food plots can pay bigger benefits than anything else out there because so many people get lazy or they only feed while they're hunting. You can really differentiate yourselves at that point in time. Yep. It's no different than having late food plots. I think a lot of food plots, a lot of guys take the same approach. They want a food plot that's prime at 1st of November when they take their vacation. They don't care about what those deer are doing at Christmas time in January. Right. And if you've got the food, you know, in late December and through January, February, the deer are going to be there. And and the the long-term benefit of that is the does that are now pregnant are having better nutrition for 
the fetus that's inside of them. And we've heard Dr. Strickland talk about this time after time after time. The nutrition of a doe while she's pregnant is is more important than even the nutrition after the buck is actually born. So mm-hmm. raising that glass ceiling over time, late season food, just a pivotal time. So I'm really curious. This is this was fascinating. You told me this before we came on air. The buck, for the people who are listening, there's just a very unique left beam on this with a G5 that you're not going to mistake this deer for another one if you get a picture for him. He uh, he has a very mm-hmm. short four and five on that side, and the, the beam curls up a little bit. But I, I think it's fascinating that the – because – uh, if if the guy would have said I have a, I saw your buck ten miles away without the picture, it might have been mm-hmm. a little bit hard to believe, especially right. on the other side of the interstate. Yep, there was no no debate, and I mean he had the picture. Yeah, and right. he had multiple pictures. Well, fun stuff. Those people who are hunting late season, uh, as we get up on this, I think I think for us the uh, the biggest thing right now is just. Uh, you know, we really, you and I have talked about this. We just really need the weather to turn brutally cold as soon as right. possible. Um, mm-hmm. I know it's going to be back warm again here this weekend. I think uh, late shotgun season is this weekend in, in Illinois. It is. And I think it's supposed to be warm and rainy, right? Yep. Uh, so we got, uh, we're recording this on Friday night. We've got two more days left of our second gun season, and it's been rainy and dreary the first two days. And uh, we need the rain, though. I'd like to see it rain an inch tomorrow and an inch Sunday. But, you know, you mentioned Dr. Strickland. I want to throw something out uh, for the listeners. Um, Dr. Str- and I, I'm not sure if you even know this yet, Terry, but Dr. Strickland is going to be the speaker at the Real World Dealer event in March 4th and 5th. So if there's anybody out there, any Real World Dealers, anybody that's thinking about being a Real World Dealer, we're going to have an event for our dealers March 4th and 5th. The night of March 4th, Dr. Strickland is going to be speaking. And when he gets done, Terry and I are going to do a live Chasing Giants podcast. And uh, the crowd will not be all that big. I mean, I expect a few hundred people, but Mm -hmm. um, it's not like you're going to be where where there's thousands of people. And Dr. Strickland will be there before and after his talk. So it'll be a good chance for some one-on-one with him. And I'm sure his presentation will be eye-opening. I think we need to challenge our real world dealers because I know some of them are big fans of the podcast and we need to come up with for that live event and the people that are on out in the audience to have a game of bingo where key phrases like tee it up and what was the other one that I would say all the time? Um, Perspective. Perspective. Where we have those and, on bingo cards, and all the audience gets to to stamp them while we're while we're doing the podcast, and we give prizes when somebody wins. I think that'd be fun, if you will. That that's my saying. Somebody said that <laughs> there, every time I say "if you will," <laughs> but, garbage. What was it? garbage? Yeah. We used garbage. garbage that's back another in, one. Garbage back in the day. We ought to do that. We ought to play bingo at the uh, at, at the live podcast that night. I need somebody, I need, well, you don't have time to do it, but we need somebody to step up and figure out how to make random bingo cards with stuff that we say all the time for our dealer meeting and live podcast in March. So hopefully somebody can come up with that Mm -hmm. 
that that would actually be really fun. We can we can hey, put some prize stuff together with our sponsors and uh, yeah. and have them involved in it. I think that'd be a, a lot of fun. Chasing giants bingo. <laughs> No drinking games allowed at this meeting. <laughs> You'll have to do that on your own time. <laughs> All right, well, let's move on to our first question of the week. I got it coming up on the screen for you to kick it off, Don. All right, the first one comes from Hunter O'Leary from Rose, I don't know, Rose something, Minnesota. <laughs> <laughs> he says... <laughs> Don, on a couple episodes ago, you had mentioned NutriCrave needs to fully mature on the stock for it to reach its full potential for creating dense nutrients. My question is, since you only have a 109-day maturity, and in my region, farmers typically only can grow 72 to 81-day corn, is someone like me better off just planting field corn with a mature date that's more fit for my region? versus planting a non-GMO product that can't reach its full potential in my region. On a side note, your babe video on YouTube had me in tears, praying for a recovery for your daughter and her family at this time. Ah, well, Hunter, a couple things. First of all, thank you for the prayers. That's much appreciated. Second of all, Hunter um, actually sent us a NutriCrave sample and uh, for us to send in for analysis. We've been collecting them from around the country from various people. And Hunter's reached out to me a couple times to see if the results are in. Hunter, I hope you're watching on YouTube because I just got the results back from, from some of these uh, NutriCrave samples from around the country. Yours is one of them, so I'm going to be mailing you that. I did not forget you. I know you think I did, but I did not forget you. So for 2024, our, our corn breeder has taken the NutriCrave and he's created two new maturities. There's... In 2024, NutriCrave is going to be available in 112-day maturity and 100-day maturity. Now, I know that 100-day is a little bit more than what you're saying that the farmers in your area plants, but it's definitely closer than the 109-day before. As far as which one you should plant, I'm, that's kind of up in the air. The only thing you're going to be able to do is just try it and see how it works out for you. But Something that I want to really point out about your submission is that you mentioned that the nutrient content of that corn does not rise um, to the high levels until late in that dry down period. And that's something that I was not expecting. Not that I'm a corn expert by any means, but if we, what we found is that if we sample a NutriCrave uh, corn plot before that corn has totally dried down on the stalk, it will not analyze near as well as if that, that corn is left on the plant, that, that ear is left on the plant, and it fully dries down in the field attached to the stalk. Somehow the nutrients just continue to rise in that corn as it's drying down. And so if you're going to send in a NutriCrave sample, make sure that that corn has dried down on the stalk you can't just go out there and pick ears shell it let it dry out on a you know a, a piece of cardboard or something or set it out in the sun what we've seen is it needs to dry down on the stalk um i hope that helps and uh, you know open some people's eyes if somebody sent in a sample on their own and they're disappointed in the nutrient content 
I would encourage them, if possible, go out and grab another sample um, now that it's probably dried down at this point by the first of December and send it in and, and do a comparison because I can almost assure you that it's going to be higher the, the later sample that's dried down on the stalk. You're raising your hand. You did it wrong or? I have a question and I'm not trying oh, okay. to tee you up on this. This is an honest question I'm trying to learn. I'll give you my perspective. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you just said that the corn will test better the later it gets in maturity. Mm -hmm. So you're taking a timeline of one corn variety through the year and saying that this is from my statistics mind, so that the curve of the nutrient value will increase the more it matures. But right. if you compare that to standard field corn, are we saying that it has to get to maturity to be better than field corn? Or throughout the year, if you plot field corn and NutriCrave, the NutriCrave on September 1st is still going to be better than field corn. If you test it on October 15th, it's still going to be better than food, field corn. And in November, it's still going to be. Make sure people understand it, because I don't, of what you're saying. I think what you're saying is if you take one variety, it's going to be better the longer you let it mature. But at all mm -hmm. times, it's always going to be better than field corn. Is that correct? That is correct. It's always going to be better than field corn, but it's not going to reach its peak nutrient content until it's fully matured on the stalk and but neither is the field corn probably i would guess that's probably accurate i don't know i, I, I mean, again we, i'm we not a corn that. expert so my yeah. point is going back to say would he be better what we're saying is even though you might not get your corn to get to the max that it had potential to under a different circumstance it's always going to be better then the alternative that's probably there is where I'm right. trying to get to if this if that's what you're trying to say, but I don't want to put words in anybody's mouth. Maybe we need to do a follow-up question with Dwayne or somebody, one of the corn breeder guys, to understand that a little bit better. Um, you know, because I think if somebody was looking if somebody was looking for a, a very specific number of protein or fat out of the corn and it didn't reach that. I can understand where the maturity would have a problem. or But if we have a delta that this is always going to be above a standard corn at any period of time, I think that's a different conversation for people. Well, it, it is. I, I shouldn't say always. Again, I'm not a corn expert. I'm kind of learning as I go here. Sure. Um, you know, one of the things that we've noticed this year is that the, the drought definitely affected the nutrients in that corn um the the numbers that we're getting back this year uh, are, are not as high as they've been in recent years and that's across the board across the midwest and, and it's the only thing we can it's different farms different um you know farmers or food potters growing it uh that's the uh the only thing we can come up with is, is that it's it's got to be due to the drought and the other thing i want to point out is a year ago we learned that it was important for that corn to stay on the stalk and dry down because we had a customer in uh, minnesota that had grown nutricrave corn and his deer were not eating it and, and i thought that is absolutely unheard of 
that's impossible. And I said, you got to send us some ears. I don't believe it. You got to send me ears. He sent in the ears. And I looked at those ears and I told Dwayne, I said, this is not Nutricrave. This is not even the color of Nutricrave. I don't know what happened here. Somehow this guy got the wrong corn. I don't know what, how the mix-up happened. He got the wrong seed corn. This is not Nutricrave. Well, as it turned out, it was Nutricrave. But what happened was that corn had not dried down before the first killing frost come, come along. And that it's just like soybeans. You know, if soybeans are not fully developed in the pod and then frost kills that plant, well, that bean's done growing. Once that plant's dead, that bean's done growing. And you can pop that bean pod open, and there's little bitty immature beans. A lot of times they will mold. And uh, what's well, the same way with this corn? If it does not have the opportunity to fully mature before that first killing frost comes along, then it's never going to have the nutrient content that it should and in that case in all honesty in that case you would be better off planting a corn of the right maturity for your area gotcha all right great information good question um we'll put up uh question number two should be coming up right about now all right this one comes from ally bros from zanesfield ohio says everyone in the hunting industry says if you want to kill your nocturnal target buck you need to find his bedding area i'm just confused if i go scouting walking through the woods this time of year and i am putting human or human pressure and scent in his core area and i find his bed with him in it what if i bump him then he takes off and finds a new core area and i just ruin my chances of getting him this season how do you avoid this, and what tactics do you use to prevent this from happening but finding his bedding area? Thanks. Well, Allie, the, the solution to that is you, you, you find his bedding area before hunting season. And I think the thing that sets apart um, the consistently successful big buck killers is that they don't look at it as this season, next season, it's it's a one continuation the chase never ends so to speak so the information they gathered this year is going to help them kill buck next year or the year after or five years from now they're always taking in information and storing it for later use and then putting it to use when the time is right so they're not walking through the woods this season to find a buck's bedding area and then setting up a stand um, to kill that buck. Instead, they're using information that they know. They already know where the the bucks mature bucks bed and on the properties they hunt, and they don't have to go in during season and do that. So, you know, my advice to you is that you 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 take that approach. You you don't look at it as now's the season, and even if you get permission on a new property. You know, you're putting that first season or two, you're gathering information to help you kill bucks in, in later seasons. And once you put enough of that together, you should get to the point where you're able to get the biggest buck on the farm in front of you on a pretty consistent basis, if not every year. Um, but it's that past information that, that you're using this season. It's not information you're gaining this week to help you kill a buck this weekend. 
it's information that you got last season or the season before or five years before that's helping you kill a buck this season. Right. Great question. Thanks for it. We'll move on to question number three. And this one comes from Kurt Kozitka from Detroit Lakes, Minnesota. It says, Don and Terry, on a recent podcast, Don predicted November 18th would have high buck activity based on weather factors aligning on weather underground weather graphs. Which of those weather factors were used? What values, peaks, and valleys for those factors used need to align? Don, please elaborate more on how you utilize the weather underground line graphs to help forecast peak buck activity days. My trail cam picks confirmed high buck activity in my area on November 18th also. Thanks for considering my question. Watched your great babe video. As a cancer survivor myself, I found the video to be very moving and emotional to watch. Thanks for the powerful and inspirational messages offered for cancer victims and their families on their past from initial diagnosis through their treatments and prayerfully successful cures. God bless. Well, Kurt, um, we actually have a video on the Whitetail Master Academy that shows this on the screen to, to make it easier to understand. But uh, on Weather Underground, there will be a 10-day forecast. And uh, at the top of the, the screen, there will be, you know, little blocks with each day for 10 days. And then under that will, will be some different charts that are one chart, for example, is going to show the temperature. So there will be a line and in the daylight hours when the temperature rises, that line will go up. And then in the, at night, that line goes down and that line is going up and down all across the screen. And uh, you can look across there and you can see the peak, or the, the high temperature for the day. And it, it will... Uh, <laughs> if you get a cold front that that high temperature will quit going as high as it had in previous days so what you're looking and then the, the chart below that i think terry's going to pull it right up on the screen here the chart below that will show uh barometric pressure so there you go so if you look right there terry on wednesday and thursday see how that black line in the second graph yeah right there See how that black line rises and the red line above it is the temperature. When those lines come together, that is prime time right there. So it, it looks to me like next Thursday, well, actually next Wednesday afternoon is, is going to be fantastic. And Thursday morning is going to be fantastic. Then it looks like the barometer starts to drop. But I would want to be hunting next Wednesday morning but afternoon for for sure next wednesday afternoon is going to be prime time and wednesday morning will be good thursday morning will be good but wednesday afternoon looks to be prime time next week based on that graph and i hope most of you have youtube or watching this on youtube where you can see exactly what i'm talking about but uh if not you can always go to the whitetail master academy and we've got a video explaining this and showing it. Uh, Steve does a fantastic job with his graphics and such on those videos. And we show it on there as well. But that's, I, I seen that coming several days in advance. And that's how I knew. 
Looks like there's another peak next Saturday, right? Right there yeah. where Terry's got his line. Looks like we got a temperature drop late Saturday afternoon uh, through the night, Sunday morning of next week. So that would be the 9th and 10th. Um, but mm -hmm. rising, rising pressure, lower temperatures. So for those of you who are just yeah. listening, you'll just have to trust us and go out to that website. If you, uh, it's free website, just go to the 10 day forecast and, uh, you should be able to see everything you need to. Weather underground happens to be my favorite, uh, weather app or, uh, website that, that I use the most. Uh, I'm sure there's other good ones as well, but. Okay, question number four. This one comes from Justin Korsmeyer from Jefferson City, Missouri. Says, I frost-seeded switchgrass this past season in late January. None of it came up. I assumed it was due to the lack of rain this past year or because I may have seeded it too early. I see that some people are, are already seeding switch for next year. I was going to reseed this spring but drill it in mid-March, when would be the best time to seed switch be? Um, God bless, love the podcast. Well, Justin, I think it's when you say none of it came up, there is an issue somewhere, and it's not the seed. It, it, you're, I mean, even poor seed is going to have some germination. It may, if it had one percent germination, you know, in a pound of switchgrass, I forget how many million seeds are in there. If you had 1% germination, something would come up. So you have a, a problem somewhere. And a couple of the most common problems with switchgrass is either planting it too deep or weed uh, competition. Uh, it, it can germinate, but it, once it, it it's slow to germinate and it can't compete with weeds. So yeah, I, for many years, I was a big fan and proponent and promoted the idea of frost seeding switchgrass. And you can get a good stand by frost seeding, but I have totally changed my mind in recent years about the best way to plant switchgrass. So what happens when you frost seed is that switchgrass seed needs soil temperatures that are going to be about 65 degrees for that seed to ever germinate. So you go out there on a perfectly bare seed bed and you broadcast that switchgrass seed it is going to sit there in that bare soil until the temperatures reach 65 degrees soil temperatures reach 65 degrees but there are plenty of weeds that don't need 65 degrees to start growing and so what happens is those weeds start germinating and growing and by the time the the switchgrass even thinks about germinating you got a good crop of weeds clear across your your plot, and the switchgrass just cannot compete with it. So here's a much better plan, and you're kind of on the right track. But I even think March is too early for you to be drilling that in. I think you want to wait till about the first of May. Um, you're from mid Missouri. I would wait till about the first of May. And what you want to do is go out there, just you, you know, let your your plot green up, let those weeds come on. And then go out there and spray those weeds with glyphosate to kill them and mix either atrazine or simazine in with your glyphosate and spray it all at the same time. You can mix those and spray one spraying, put both chemicals down. The glyphosate is going to kill any weeds that are there. The atrazine or simazine is going to act as a residual in the soil or a pre-emergent. 
So it's going to prevent weeds. And, and as soon as you spray, you can do it the same day. As soon as you get done spraying, go in there and no-till your switchgrass seed in. Make sure you don't get it too deep. A quarter inch is the deepest you want to go. Eighth inch is ideal. Do not go over a quarter. So what's going to happen is the weeds you just sprayed are going to start to die. And the switchgrass, by that point, the soil temperatures are getting warmed up. It's going to be ready to grow immediately if you've got any soil moisture at all. And the other thing is, is that pre-emergent herbicide that you're putting down, it's only going to work for a certain window of time. That window is going to vary a little bit based on the weather. If you get a lot of rain, it's going to wash away and it's not going to last near as long. Now, you need a little bit of rain to activate it to get it into the soil so it can actually work. But a lot of rain, it's not going to last as long. But So what you want to do is you want to be planting your switchgrass seed at the very start of that window where that residual herbicide is working. And then whenever it wears off, and it's going to wear off at some point during that summer, your switchgrass by that point is established. You're getting it in there without any weed competition, and you're giving that pre-emergent herbicide the longest window possible to work as that switchgrass is getting established. And if you do that, you should have a good stand of switchgrass. So if we wait till May in parts of the Midwest to fro or to no-till in our switchgrass seed, does that put a little bit more emphasis on artificially stratifying your switchgrass seed in the freezer to get it ready for that, or does that matter as much? Well, it, it actually, that's a great point, Terry. It matters more. Um, so when you look at your switchgrass seed tag, you're going to see a, a couple things you want to look at. Is It's going to say germination rate. And you may think the germination rate is low, but you're also going to see a percentage of hard seed, it's going to say. So you might have a germination rate of 70%, but you might have 25% hard seed. Well, that hard seed is also going to germinate, but that hard seed needs to go through a stratification process before it germinates. So if you do nothing, you just go out there and you plant that seed without any stratification, 70% of it's going to grow. 25% of it is probably going to lay there in the soil and not grow until maybe even the following spring. It's going to lay in the ground for some period of time, maybe even a year from then before it, it grows. You can, you can kind of jumpstart that stratification process by taking your bag of seed, buy it several months ahead of time, and take that bag of seed and put it in your freezer and leave it in your freezer for a week, 10 days, two weeks, whatever. Take it out and let it thaw for a week or two weeks. Put it back in for a week or so. And back and forth, that freezing and thawing cycle softens and cracks that seed coating so that that hard seed that's noted on your seed tag, it will germinate that first year right along with the, the rest of the seed. Yeah. So I think when we frost seed, you're going to get that naturally with the ground as the right. weather changes. The later you wait with this method, we need to artificially do that to get the best germination the first year possible. I did tee you up on that one. You did, and uh, I gave my perspective, if you will. <laughs> All right, next question. And this one comes from Matthew Montag from Goshen, Ohio. It says, hey, Don and Terry, my question is about wildflowers. 
Do either of you guys have experience planting wildflowers on your farm? And if so, have you noticed deer using this as bedding cover? If not, would it be possible to mix in a little switchgrass seed or surround it with miscanthus to make it good for both bees and deer? Thanks for all the great info. Uh, well, Matthew, yeah, well, um, depending on the wildflower mix you use, or forbs, as they're sometimes called, um, it can make great bedding cover. Um, I would much prefer it, if you, if you insist on having it, I would prefer that it be mixed in with some grasses. If you want a, a showy mix, we'll say, something uh, with eye appeal, you know, you want to use some shorter grasses like um, little blue stem or side oats grama. Um, if you want deer bedding cover, I would use a minimal amount of switchgrass in with it, real-world switchgrass uh, to be ex specific, because there are some switchgrasses that do not get near as tall. Um, and again, it comes down to which wildflowers are in the mix. There's some of those that are going to be taller than others. It does make a, a, a really showy mix in the summertime, especially uh, if you've got a good Ford mix, uh, nothing wrong with it. The, the thing that I don't like for, about it from a deer hunting standpoint or a deer management standpoint is that the deer will actually eat some of those wild, they'll browse on those wildflowers. Uh, so it's a food source for them. They're not going to browse on switchgrass. They're just not going to eat it. If it's a, if they're bedded in a pure stand of switchgrass, there's nothing out there for them to eat. And if they would get hungry, you force them to get up and move out of that switchgrass field to feed at least on the edge if they've got wildflowers scattered throughout that switchgrass field they can sit out there all day long and browse on it and never come out and expose themselves so from a from a hunting standpoint as a whitetail land manager i prefer just a straight stand of, of switchgrass however um, sometimes along the edge of those fields you know for maybe just 15 20 feet on the edge i will put a wildflower mix with some shorter grasses in it um terry the lane behind my my shed that goes down to the bridge there's that little strip of about 20 feet where i planted wildflowers and such um i actually divided the wildflowers from the switchgrass with a strip of miscanthus so i got like 20 feet of wildflowers a strip of miscanthus and on the other side of the miscanthus is the switchgrass uh, just to kind of, you know, for eye appeal more than anything. It's not right. for the deer whatsoever. Although it, it is good for the birds, too, because those wildflowers or those forbs produce a lot of seeds that, you know, uh, quail, pheasants, even songbirds like. So th there's a benefit to it, and I like some of it around, but I just don't like big fields of it. Okay. We get that question a lot. There's a lot of information out there where people want to put food or forbs inside of their switch and you know we've stand yep. firm in in kind of our idea when we want something to eat we want them to leave and walk past our tree stand where we've worked so hard to make that habitat for them but i like the idea from a curb appeal you know looking out over putting those edges in um you know if you're looking at a big valley or something from a high point it doesn't do as much good because you know you can see the whole thing but I was thinking the exact same thing about the, the the spot behind your house, looking back out off your back porch. I mean, that looks gorgeous looking down there, but you can't see over the hill where the rest of the normal switchgrass is, so it would serve no appeal to the eye by doing it right. that way. So 
Yep. All right. That's a very popular question this time of year. And I want to throw something else out too. I had a lady um, tell me, actually it was at the ATA show. Um, she was just, she was really interested at, at our switchgrass that year that we introduced, or not switchgrass, Miscanthus. Miscanthus. The, yeah. year, the year we introduced that, um, she is a beekeeper and plants a lot of, of forbs and stuff on their property. And she said that the, the bees will actually burrow into the stalks on that Miscanthus and they will, I don't know what the heck they do. They rest in there or what, but they will burrow into the stalks on that, on the reeds of that Miscanthus. So you could go through a wildflower forb planting and, and have clumps of Miscanthus scattered through it too and give you some height. And uh, that would appeal to the bees just as much as the flowers do. Well, for those people why I'm bringing up the next question that are wondering what in the world is going on on YouTube, uh, we are we are babysitting my oldest daughter's dog. So I am have the grand dog here right now, <laughs> and she is not liking that I'm not giving her any attention. So I just threw a ball across the trophy room down here to try to keep her occupied until we're done so read uh question number six before we start having a dog fight here with our dog and our grand dog i thought maybe you was teeing the ball up for something but <laughs> not quite anyway uh the last one is this the last one yes last question A anyway this one comes from ryan Pateki. i hope i said your name right ryan from bell Bellefont, Pennsylvania. It says, Hi, Don and Terry. What is the most important thing you look for when selecting a stand location? P.S. Love the podcast, especially the ones where you make fun of the <laughs> rainbow flags and the Bud Light thing. <laughs> Hilarious and refreshing for someone to have the courage to call these people out on their bullcrap. Never change. You are the man. Well, Ryan, you, you know how to get a question picked. I'll tell you that. <laughs> how, could, how could I not pick that question after he had that comment? Um, the, the number one most important thing for a tree stand, hands down, no second place, absolutely the number one thing is access. If you cannot access a stand, I don't care what's around it. Uh, it you could have the most sign, the biggest scrape. You could have a parade of deer pass that stand on, or that tree on your trail camera every stinking day. But if you cannot access that stand without spooking deer, you're only going to get a very few hunts out of it before it's burned out. On the other hand, if you do have good access to a stand, you can hunt it on a very regular basis, several days in a row if the wind's right. Um, this stand that I talked about earlier that I'm going to create on this new property that I said is going to be the best stand in the county, one of the things that's going to make that stand so great is the access. If I get the right wind, I could hunt that stand every single day and put absolutely zero pressure on the entire property, not just around that stand on that corner of the property. I will put zero pressure on that entire property. There won't be a deer on that property even know there's a hunter there. Yeah. It's all about access. It's all about access. If you don't have good access, you don't have a good stand. Create the habitat to funnel to the access. We've talked about it a zillion, exactly. a zillion times on here. 
Well, uh, the thumbnail I'm going to use, obviously, for this uh, episode is going to be how far that buck traveled. I still think that's the most fascinating thing we talked about tonight. But we had six really good questions and a really high-maintenance dog in the room. So um, <laughs> I don't have any more because this is about to get really hairy here right in front of me. So. <laughs> well, we got episode 200 coming up. Um and I want to throw something out there. 200 is a special number for me, especially. So if there's any listener that has a hot tip <laughs> on a 200-inch buck, please let me know for episode 200. I want proof in the form of trail camera pictures. I want you to take me to where that trail camera picture is at so I can see the trees in the background and know you're not lying to me. If you'll do that, I will make you our special guest on episode 200. How could, How's that, Terry? How could someone turn down that opportunity to be part of our nonsense? Yeah, give up a 200-inch buck to appear for five minutes on on this that comedy show. That does not show. sound like a fair trade. <laughs> Let's see if anybody we do jumps not, on it. We do not pay that well, I can assure you. <laughs> I'll probably get a 1,000 pictures of 200-inch bucks sent my way, and they're going to tell me the picture was taken in downtown los angeles or something just to get me there yeah um you want to give a quick update on andrea before we sign off i know a lot of people were asking especially after the babe video let us know where she's at so we can keep her in our prayers yeah um she is uh she just took chemo treatment number three of the second round the second round's a 12-week ordeal uh every monday for 12 weeks so she's had three of them got nine to go um, I, she just amazes me with her spirit. I mean, that, that girl is so positive that uh, you, you can't be around her and be negative. Right. Um, she just won't even let you know if she's not feeling well. She was, but, she's uh, always been like that since I've known her though. I mean, it's she just, is, that's she, her, she always has personality, been. but the, the fact that she can maintain yep. that through this is just amazing. Yeah, so, you know, prayers are definitely appreciated, and uh, uh, it's uh, it's hard to even find the words. The journey is, is so long because, I mean, she's been taking, she's had uh, seven chemo treatments so far. She's not even halfway through yet. She has to do surgery and radiation after the chemo, and... Uh, I'll tell you what, watching her makes me think if I come down with cancer, I'm not sure I'm taking chemo. But, I mean, I understand exactly why she did, and I, I'm sure you can say things like that, but until it comes right down to it and you, you're dealing with your life, um, you don't know what you're really going to do. But uh, Well, I think it's I, – I would say – Go ahead. For what she's been through and is going through, she's doing pretty well, but she wouldn't let me know if she wasn't. I'd have to get it from Corey. Well, I look at um, her as a person, but also as a believer in Christ. And I think it's also a testament that we never know what's going to happen, when it's going to happen, whether it's sickness or accident. And uh, the assurance we have in a much bigger picture. I'm, I, I got something to kind of share before we... A communion meditation was done at our church last week by a guy talking. He heard a story on the radio about a lady and you know when we talk about sometimes when people go to heaven oh well i'm gonna reconnect with my dad or my grandfather you know when we get to heaven 
And he told the story about this lady that the first thing she is going to do, if allowed, is for the first million years of eternity just stare at Jesus if she's allowed because of the sacrifice that he gave. And I'm like, for the first million years, when we think about the scope of eternity, uh, it's probably not that long, even though it's a million years. But the fact that she put into words that that's her priority above all else is to, if she's allowed, to stare at the face of Jesus, the person that allowed her to be there when she didn't deserve it. And I thought it was pretty powerful. So as as you're listening to this podcast and laughing at us, making jokes and uh, saying perspective so many times, I think that's the ultimate perspective as we get into the holiday season is your family and also a reflection of your faith and where you're at. And uh, I think that Wes is going to be doing our Sunday night prayer time this week on Chasing Giants. It'll air at 7 o'clock on Sunday night. And that young man I know is going to have a a, a very um, good message this week. But uh, reflect a little bit about where you're at, not only in your hunting journey, where you want to be, but also your spiritual walk and where you're at with your family as we go on through the holidays this week. Um, we never know what's going to happen tomorrow. Yeah. Amen. Uh, you know, don't have any regrets. Get your priorities in order right now. And, uh, I think I said it on the babe video. You never know when a loved one can be taken from you. So make the most of every day. Yep, absolutely. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back next week and, uh, yeah. Episode 200 coming up soon. Can't wait. Yep. God bless everybody. Have a great week. Take care. Chasing Giants has been brought to you by Osseo Camo, Via Farm Real Estate Company, 360 Hunting Blinds, Victory Chevrolet, Real World Wildlife Products, Matthews Archery, Novix Tree Stands, Gingerich Tree Farm, WildlifeFarming.com, Quiet Cat, and Vortex Optics. Thanks for listening and tune in next week for another episode of Chasing Giants.